welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. I'm very excited today. Oh, yeah. We have a very <laughs> exciting setup here in, in our dining room there today. There are cords. I am cords wrapped in cords. Everywhere. <laughs> And <laughs> I'm afraid of a fire, honestly. <laughs> this is specifically because we have our very first Skype in guest. Oh, I feel so professional because we are usually the ones that Skype into other episodes, yeah. other, other people, other podcasts. So um, this is our first uh, via Skype um, guest star. <laughs> and yes, this guest star is uh, a Minnesotan by way of Toronto. Andrew Thomas of the 10 Things I Wish You Knew podcast. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Julia. Hello, Lauren. How are you doing on this fine, cold winter's day? I know. Oh, it's so much better than it was. Oh, my God. We I don't even like... need coats now. I drove over here, and I was like, ah, spring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other day, I took a breath, and I was like, ow, my nose. So this is definitely upgrade. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it was, you got it much worse than we did. I mean, I saw a Twitter thing that was like negative 30 in St. Paul or something like that. And a wind chill of negative 55. Oh, so. my God. That's not, shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> no. I like to claim that I've got a little bit of uh, cold heritage growing up in Toronto, but it ain't got nothing on the on Minnesota. No. It's, <laughs> it's a whole new level of cold and a whole new level of wind that I was, uh, saying I wasn't prepared for it suggests that I could have been prepared for it. So. <laughs> I don't think you could possibly be prepared for that kind of thing because it's so flat there. It is. And the wind just rushes right across the flatness. Mm -hmm. And so this is the first time I'd ever been anywhere where it was specifically they were canceling school or work or anything because of coldness yeah. as opposed wow. to just snow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, Minnesota yeah. is a horrifying wasteland <laughs> that no one should live in. So the winter of 2019 of where anything can happen. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Fires. <laughs> Fires, raccoons climbing up buildings, yep. uh, some sports teams that, with moderate levels of success, you know, yeah, all the usual good stuff. It's amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. So, uh, Andrew, what is going to be your topic for us today? Well, you may recall that you had a little guest stint on my podcast, 10 uh, Things I Wish You, you Knew. Yeah. Uh, there were two wonderful episodes, and the second of which was less wonderful than the first because it was me <laughs> giving the stuff. No, uh, it's great. But the, the gist of that one was I asked 10 things about people who were uh, famous in the world of jazz because jazz is a nerdy interest of mine and has been for some time. Well, I knew that uh, having listened to your show previously, you said, well, we should have someone on and talk about jazz. So that little light bulb thing went on above my head and thought, mm -hmm. hey, I know someone who knows something who could talk about jazz. Uh, and once they're not available, you could just ask me. So, <laughs> so what I did was, uh, having listened to your show a fair amount, figuring out what your format was and the way you like to do your, um, your particular discovery, I thought I would go to a list of, uh, in particular, women who were influential in the world of jazz one way or the other. Um, and then I made that list and realized that uh, I... I had more to say about some of them than others. And also that I'd left one name off the original broadcast, uh, who was someone who I thought was not only um, kind of fundamental to jazz for me, but doesn't get a lot of extra respect in mm. the world, uh, in the public world. So what I put together is a little uh, series of vignettes. This is three stories about jazz. Oh, cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Do, do, do. 
I hope that, yeah, I can picture like, so like saxophone solo. Or like a jazz flute. You don't hear about that a lot. Lauren can just do the music I can. I'm a very good mouth mimic. Flautist. Flautist. A mouth flautist, we're called. That works too. We're called. We're called. There are tens of us. There are tens of us Dozens of us. All right. Well, I think we're, I mean, we're ready. I'm excited. I'm excited. This is going to be great. Teach us. All right. So I'm going to go in the order in which these people were born. Great. Because then it goes, then it goes woman, man, woman. Uh, and, but all, ordinary, like there's no real distinction I have to give from them other than they've all made some level of influence and they're all worth having the stories told. Uh, but the first one I'm going to talk about is the one who was not the musician of the three. Uh, she was a patron uh, whose whose life intersected with the lives of many other personalities in jazz. Uh, her name was uh, you'll know her for short as Panonica, uh, but but her full uh, full name after her marriage was Baroness Kathleen Annie Panonica de Kernigsvorter, <gasps> nay Rothschild. Uh, what? How do I get to be a Baroness? Uh, well, first of all, uh, how do you, I get to be a Rothschild? <laughs> Well, Shit. the answers to your two questions in reverse order are you're born into it and uh, you marry it. Damn. <laughs> We're both too late. Afraid so. But as you may as you may see, both of these things may have a downside. Oh, so, okay. okay. Ooh. So Kathleen Annie Panonica Rothschild was born in London on December 10th, 1913. She was the youngest daughter of Charles Rothschild and his wife, the Hungarian Baroness Rosika Edli von Wertheimstein. I'm going to butcher that no matter Oof, what. No, it's okay. Love it. Hungarian Bertenstein. is one of the hardest languages. <laughs> it's got to be. Uh, her mother was the daughter of Baron Alfred von Rothenstein of Transylvania. <gasps> so she was immediately born into privilege and prestige. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'm going to mention right now is I've heard her name pronounced two different ways, uh, ba- both by people who I don't think have ever met her. <laughs> so I've heard both uh, Panonica and Pananika. Mm. And the and the shorthands from each of those become Nika and Nika, respectively. Okay. So, so I've heard it both ways, and I've I've been taken to pronouncing it Nika because it sounds better to me to my musical ear. But I went and listened to a couple of um, things that were people um, interviews that people had done online with with people who had actually met her and said her name in the course of this conversation, and they seemed to go with Panonica and Nika as mm. the nicknames. So that's what I'm going to go with for this. But if it turns out that I'm wrong, I apologize to her family and descendants. <laughs> but, I, but, but I tried to do my research having never met the woman. I, I kind of like Panonica because it sounds like Panopticon, Ooh. which yes. uh, makes it sound like she's some kind of like futuristic machine woman who creates destruction wherever she goes. I so it also well, sounds like Harmonica. Yeah, that too. That <laughs> which is He's, musical. Easier way to remember than than Pananaika, which sounds like like something you would serve at a at a uh, breakfast before. Or like exactly. a very angry like directive. Yeah, Pananaika. Yes. Exactly. No. <laughs> well, as it turns out, she was a bit of a future kind of lady herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she was um, part of the joy of being born into some privilege is that she was able to do things at a young age that many around her couldn't. For example. Uh, she became a pilot and aviation enthusiast when she was quite young. Cool. Uh, she uh, she gathered about much of Europe, and when she was age 21, uh, she met her future husband, who is also a pilot, uh, the French engineer and banker Baron Jules de Koningsvarter, who was 10 years her senior. Mm, right. they, they met, had a quick romance, and would eventually have five children together, including one from his previous marriage. 
Uh, the couple was living in France during the Nazi invasion, and Jules was a reservist lieutenant and was called up to serve. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know what happened to France. Oof. And so what what he did was he ended up joining up with Charles de Gaulle's free French forces and served not in France or in England, but in the Congo. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> Where all and, of the fighting of the- <laughs> was happening <laughs> for World War II. <laughs> War II. <laughs> yeah. uh, there was some fighting, but not the best fighting. No. Uh, <laughs> still plenty of combat happening in Africa, but probably not for the best of reasons mm-hmm. happening in South Africa. So Jules instructed Nika to take the two children to Long Island uh, to stay with their friends, the Guggenheims. And oh, every time I just read this story, it's like every extra level of, of high society is being layered on here. Yeah, exactly. Well, she uh, apparently took this directive to be make sure the children are safe because she dropped them off with the Guggenheims and then went to Africa herself. Oh, and my joined God. With, joined with her husband in the Free French Forces. Wow. She served several roles in this, including uh, ambulance driver, decoder, and radio host. I don't know to what in detail, oh, I but I didn't that. get to hear the part. <laughs> Hello! Bonjour! <Yeah. laughs> Time for some soft sounds of World War II. <laughs> with, her, with, her, with a fine British accent. How yes, are you exactly. Wrong with that? Wow. So she finished... So she herself finished the war uh, as an officer. She was a lieutenant when she finished. Oh my God. So she had, uh, but unfortunately things didn't go as well for her family uh, outside, uh, for her extended family. Um, the Rothschilds were Jewish, the Koningswaters were Jewish, and many, many people in the family perished in the Holocaust. Mm. Well, this helped uh, inform her attitude to a bit as a survivor as opposed to a victim. Mm-hmm. And so she, uh, as, as is reflected in her later life, she thought, saw it as her duty as someone in the upper class to do what she felt was good for humanity. And what it turned out that was, was jazz. So, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. So after the war, her husband got uh, diplomatic postings, uh, first served in Norway and then in Mexico. Uh, at this time, their marriage wasn't particularly great. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she did was uh, immerse herself more in jazz. Uh, now, her brother was an amateur jazz pianist who'd studied with Art Tatum, who's, oh, wow. an, uh, who's a famous jazz pianist himself. Uh, and so that's where she got her inspiration for a lot of her love for it. And so during her time in Mexico, she spent quite a bit of time at her friend's place listening to jazz music. Probably, but possibly getting stoned while doing it. I can't be <laughs> I mean, clear. Probably. That, they call <laughs> it a I, jazz cigarette for a reason, Andrew. But, but I wouldn't doubt. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. Given the company she would later keep, uh, I, I definitely wouldn't doubt that that's mm. what she was indulging in. Uh, so there's um, a book called Three Wishes that came out a while ago. And there's a quote from this from her. Uh, I was in the throes of the diplomatic life in Mexico, she remembered of the years 1949 to 1952, and I had a friend who got hold of records for me. I used to go to his pad to hear them. I'm sure pad means it's flop. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't have listened to them in my own house with that atmosphere, which mm. in this case means the upper class uh, uh, um, wishes of her husband. Uh, I heard them and really got the message. I belonged where that music was. This was something I was supposed to be involved in in some way. It wasn't long afterwards that I cut out. Now, uh, according to one record, she separated from her husband in 1951, and yet she was doing this uh, still in Mexico in 1952. So at this point, she was probably making her preparations to be out of the life. And they separated. So they separated. She moved uh, to New York, leaving her husband, at which point she started spending her time in jazz clubs and was introduced to the greats, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, and Thelonious Monk. Wow. We've heard of all of them. Yeah, you You, told us about those people. (laughs) Major influences, especially in the bebop movement in the 1940s and 50s. And by 1952, this is when she started to get involved. So she's a rich woman. 
she had she 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 loved their music. She did what she could to support them. So what patronizing in this case means in a few ways. Uh, one is that she would host jam sessions in her apartment, oh. which was in the Stanhope Hotel in New York City. Can you imagine? Can you imagine hosting a jam session? How boring no. could that possibly be? <laughs> Drum solos for like 15 and a half minutes in your could living room. You. you can't escape with, it. Yeah. With these ones. But they're going to be the best drum solos because she's getting the best people. Yeah. Oh, sure. Of course. Of course. Of course. Right. I know. So, Sorry. So <laughs> I just not, really hate yeah. drum solos. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily at this time, most recordings that were being made were on standard play records, which were only about three minutes long. So most of what they were doing for the recording industry was only three minutes long. Per oh, song. I see. Okay. So maybe they were going a little bit longer at the recordings, but they weren't going 15 minutes long. Oh, okay. so it's not a seven. fish session. No, here. this wasn't like fish. No. <laughs> at this point, they hadn't gotten into that level of uh, depth when oh, it came okay. to their recording. Great. Good. So <laughs> you don't have to deal with the 10 minute drum solo, but maybe the two minute drum solo. Oh, okay. I can handle a two minute drum yeah. solo. <laughs> And you're getting the best. You're getting it from Max Roach and other drummers whose names I can't remember right now who are in that crowd. Mm. But they were definitely... And remember his name for later too because he's going to come up. Right. So so she would host jam sessions in her apartment. She'd give them chauffeured rides to gigs. And when necessary, uh, she would help pay their bills. Uh, one of the other things that would come up and what was mentioned previously was you needed a cabaret card, which is a permission... Um, if you wanted to to play in any establishment that served alcohol in New York City, you had to have this official document called the cabaret card. And it was also kind of a means of controlling um, elements that the police thought were less than reputable. Mm -hmm. And so if you had a criminal record, it took they would revoke it. So for... Um, for musicians who had this happen to them, including Charlie Parker, um, she was kind of the one who would help support them through that nice. because it was a play. You know, I think she felt that um, in a lot of cases there was miscarriages of justice that sure. would stop this from happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I feel like this shows up in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel show. Oh, really? That she's performing without a, without a card. Oh, okay. okay. I haven't seen it, but I believe that's definitely going to be part of it especially mm. since she would probably have been facing the same sorts of uh societal pressures sure. that mm. the african-american community might have in this time too mm -hmm. so just to give you a hint of exactly how influential she was i've got a list of no fewer than nine pieces of music uh that were named for her oh, oh wow. wow oh my god <laughs> yeah so first of all the one on the list that i have is Thelonious monk's panonica or panonica as i knew it for a long time huh uh which is one that uh uh, one of the two that I think I I might have had on the jazz playlist that I made up before. I think um, it was, was yeah, because it yeah. does sound familiar, but I guess I never associated it with a human person. person yeah, that is just well, a bunch just of a name root words yeah. all stuck together. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, uh, Pandorica, Panopticon, take your pick. <laughs> Panonica was <laughs> Panonica was was one of the ones that was most established for being. It was very clearly her. Um, Horace Silver's uh, Horace Silver wrote the tune uh, Nika's Dream, which Art Blakey. Messengers played, which does run about 11 minutes. <laughs> okay. Uh, Gigi Grice, Nika's Tempo, Sonny Clark, Nika, Kenny Dorham, Two Kenny Drew, Blues for Nika, Freddie Red, Nika Steps Out, Barry Harris, Inca, because you think you're being cute if you're rearranged some letters, <laughs> and finally, Tommy Flanagan's Thelonica. <laughs> sure is a... And Panonica. This is very, very charming. That's yeah. nice. So this, is, this is a woman who had a real impact on people at a time when they were not getting their respect from society at large. Sure, yeah. Particularly, particularly white society. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah. So here we are on the first tragedy. In 1955, you remember that Charlie Parker died at age 34. Mm -hmm. Heroin. And it was heroin. <laughs> he had a lot of things that went wrong with him. 
by the way, I would look through all these people to find sexual sexually transmitted diseases so we could do a say it with me and then say three <laughs> different diseases. But but None. I'm afraid it didn't come up with any. Ah, uh, that's too bad. No. Next say time, it with next me. Time. Heroin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the catchphrase yeah, yeah. for jazz. Next yeah. <laughs> yes. And unfortunately, it is. Uh, he died age 34 as a partly as a result of um, his heavy drug use. Um, when the when his autopsy was done, they estimated he was between 50 and 60 years of age. <gasps> that's how much damage had been done to his body. Oh my God, that's well. Awful. He di- yeah, It's pretty pretty awful how much that he'd gone through and how much heroin had ravaged a lot of people in the community herself, mm-hmm. uh, that the community itself. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how much, what her involvement w- of it was, but I'm pretty sure she was anti-heroin. Mm-hmm. Great. Good. Great stance. Yeah, that's yes. bold. <laughs> bold of her. Looking, particularly looking after people who had gone through heroin abuse. Oh, mm-hmm. sure, yeah. Think, yeah. Well, not only did Charlie Parker die at age 34, he apartment <gasps> uh, in the San Hope Hotel. Are you uh, serious? Yeah. Oh my God, so I had no idea. So oh, she was looking. Awful. She was looking after him, and that's where it happened. Oh my God, that's Aww. awful. Yeah. So, so they told um, they kicked her out of the hotel because of the the infamy of this happening. Mm. Um, his um, she she hadn't been officially divorced from her husband until this point when tabloid coverage of the death uh, was bad for the family. So oh, her husband sure, then yeah. officially mm. husband then officially divorced her and gained custody of. They had five children. He gained custody of the three younger ones. Mm. Uh, and the two who had moved o- over had stayed with her. Um, and the rest of the family from her side had effectively disinherited her. Oh my God. But wow. She had plenty of money tucked away at this point. The Rothschilds were still wealthy. Um, she still had plenty of means at her disposal. Mm-hmm. So she was able to do this, but I don't think regretted any of it based on the choices she'd made. Sure, yeah, yeah. So she was forced into that hotel. Uh, she immediately moved to the Boulevard Hotel on Central Park West, and then a couple of years later bought a house in Weehawken, New Jersey, where she stayed for many years to follow. Mm. Uh, one of the eventual guests at this house was, wait for it, Thelonious Monk. Oh, hey, the monk himself. The monk. The, the monk. The monk. T-H-E. Yeah. So there's probably no one more associated with her, uh, musically speaking, than monk himself. Uh Largely because uh, he had his own issues with cabaret cards, mental health, um, the law. Mm. And so her role in his life to be able to support him uh, had not gone unnoticed by many people Mm. um, since then. Uh, She met him actually in Paris, not New York City, um, at a particular uh, showing because the the Europeans tended to to like Monk quite a bit more than others. Mm -hmm. Uh, She became his most... Um, his most well-known patron and probably vice versa as her most well-known uh, patrony. I don't know what the word here is. Protege is not quite the right word either. Benefactor. But, uh, benefact- benef- beneficiary. 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 Yeah, there we go. There we we go. get there. Yeah. That's why so we're all she team. Would pay- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So Monk was married uh, to a woman named Nellie at the time, um, but uh, she helped look after, helped pay his bills when he didn't miss his cabaret card. Um, got him committed at one point when he, his mental uh, state was not so good. Mm-hmm. Um, he released an album in 1963 called Criss Cross, which has one of my favorite Monk tunes on it, and she wrote the liner notes for it. So she was clearly had been immersed in this world for quite a bit of time and, yeah. and knew it and got it. And it was partly, this album actually got him on the cover of Time Magazine in 1964. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. So he was definitely being recognized as someone respectable. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is an issue. It's going to happen quite wow. a bit in the world. So uh, at one point, um, th- most points throughout uh, his career, she was helping him. 
he retired from playing in the 1970s, partly as a result of his mental health. Mm. And he retired to her house in Weehawken in those mid-1970s. And he died there in 1982. Oh, my God. So not quite as shocking as uh, Charlie Parker's death, but still that she was the... Um, landlord for two people when two people in famous in jazz history died wow yeah, that's rough it's also not gone <laughs> that's a pattern yeah <laughs> so uh she continued to patronize the jazz world but was known in the in the jazz community largely for her contributions by the people themselves and it wasn't lar- until after her death in 1988 that more people began to take notice. Mm-hmm. Um, she was played by Diane Salinger in the 1988 movie Bird, uh, starring oh. Forrest Whitaker, oh. about the life of Charlie Parker. Uh, Diane Salinger, who you may remember from Pee Wee's Big Adventure as Simone. Uh, yes, that's uh, what I, I don't recognize her. I'm going to have to Google. <laughs> yeah. You recognize her if you saw it. She had a very striking face, or has, because she's still acting. She also had a role in Deep Space Nine as one of Kira's terrorist friends, <gasps> where she's... Just Wait, as charming. Th- that's where Lauren's going to get oh, the I'm going to get from. it. That, I would get it I'm from the Pee-wee. <laughs> she would get it from the Star Trek. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yes, I know exactly who. She's a very strong jaw and red hair. Yes. 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 Okay, great. <laughs> and, and and when I see Panonica in my mind, it's basically the same yeah. sort of presence. I can see someone that. someone with, with class and respect, but also willing to, to dig in the, mm-hmm. the dirtier parts. Uh, so she was uh, played by by Diane Sollinger in that movie. And the same year, Clint Eastwood produced a documentary about Monk called Straight No Chaser after one of his famous mm-hmm. tunes in which, yeah. in which she reflected on his life. And this was released just before her death. Wow. So afterwards is when she got a little more public attention. Uh, her grandniece, Hannah Rothschild, made a documentary about her called The Jazz Baroness. <gasps> it, aired on, it aired on the BBC in 2009 and re-aired it on HBO in 2012. Uh, I have not seen it, but I'm totally going to. Yeah. As yeah. soon as, I can, look as, soon as I can find it. Get someone's yeah. HBO Go password. Yeah, That's all you do need. that. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> as long as you, you quietly record over this, then you can borrow mine. <laughs> hey Panonica finally expired November 30th, 1988 at the Columba Presbyterian Medical Center. Her funeral took place in St. Peter's Lutheran Church in New York, which is known as the Jazz Church for its <gasps> pu- for its role Church? and acceptance of jazz. Aww. And her ashes were scattered in the Hudson River around midnight, which was also one of Monk's most famous tunes. Oh, that's sweet. That's very nice. Are you allowed to scatter yeah. ashes in the Hudson River? I mean, I guess it's a body probably of water. As discreet, probably as discreetly as possible. Oh, yes. <laughs> like <laughs> someone had it in their pockets and, and just, just kind of like, like dump, dump. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Like Shawshank. I think, I think a yeah. body of water, you're allowed to dump ashes. I think you can't like, we've talked about this before. Because <laughs> the Ganges River is just mostly human bo- remains oh, right yeah. now. No, it's yes. full of bodies. I think, it's immensely polluted from that and other, yeah, not yeah. just agriculture, but definitely people dumping their their relatives in there. Yeah, yeah. I think like um, you can't dump somebody's ashes over a stadium or like in Central Park. Oh, yeah. Disney World. Well, Disney they got World. people who are there just oh. to make sure you don't have any cremains on you <laughs> when you get to Disney World. Yeah. So I seem to recall in hockey, um, Bob Probert, who was the Red Wings enforcer, oh. um, some some of his ashes were scattered in the Joe Louis Arena penalty box. Oh, uh, oh my god! I don't know how I don't know how discreetly it was done or how quickly it was cleaned up afterwards. But yeah, it's it's definitely done on the DL. Sure. As, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean. Yankee Stadium and uh, Fenway. Oh yeah, your dad I'm, wants to be at Fenway. I'm right? sure. I'm. Just, my dad wants to like home plate at Fenway, so I got to find some <laughs> yeah. way of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and you got to get one of those umpire brushes and brush it off the screen. Yeah, exactly. Afterwards. <laughs> he would love that, or not. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be in. Yeah, I'm sure you could talk him into it, yeah. or at least part of it. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. 
so, so there's she the story was, of so she yeah. was scattered into the the Hudson River, the, the city yeah. she loved, and the city she loved among the people she loved. Oh, oh that's lovely. Yeah. yeah. So she's she was a major behind the scenes influence that did a long time mm. outside the community, uh, and so is a story worth sharing just because. Well, not only did she have a pretty awesome life, among other things, yeah. Yeah. what she ended up choosing to do with it um, fit her fit her personal purpose. Mm-hmm. Like she she had discovered early on, I've got money. I know like family is such an important thing. Um, let's give these people a family. Seems yeah. to be the attitude that she went in with. Yeah, that's great. Uh, partic- yeah. So uh, so that ends the first story. Of great start, Andrew. I'm touched. Well, it's beautiful. And there's a whole, and I just gave you a whole playlist with every song I just named for stuff you can look, yeah, look exactly. up as well. Awesome. <laughs> all right. So I, I keep harping upon all the difficulties of heroin and drugs and everything in the jazz community. And so story number two is about someone who is the exact opposite. This is about a jazz trumpeter. I have written in my notes, it's too, too good for this sinful earth. Oh, uh, wow. His name, his name is Clifford Brown. Uh, he was a, a bebop trumpeter. He was born October 30th, 1930 in Delaware. He was a, um, he started playing the trumpet in age 13. Um, he was also a math nerd. In oh. fact, he was a big time. He was a big time. I want to call him a dork, but I don't know him well enough <laughs> from his early life. But this is a man who's, des- they described his biggest vice as being chess. Oh. Just tells you the story. Oh, that's so precious. Now I, I do understand that um, music theory has a lot of um, math adjacent qualities to it. And so mm. I can see, I, I know a couple of people who were like double major physics and piano or whatever in college. Yeah. So I feel like that um, if you have a music brain, it lends itself very well to math and vice versa. Would you say that that's correct? I know a lot of people who are like that too. Yeah. In fact, a good friend of mine was, um, was a math music double major who I played in the jazz band with. And he went, and I don't know if he's still working in video games, but he worked for a while for the company that made Karaoke Revolution and Rock Band. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. Because it, na- it was the natural fusion of the computing side of things plus something fun like this. Uh, but he's definitely not the only one who's pursued that, as, as you mentioned. Uh, but he's also a super decent guy. And, oh, that's uh, nice. Yeah, I enjoyed his company quite a bit. And I played in the band with him, so we had lots of good band times. Mm-hmm. He was a trombone player himself. What was your uh, instrument again? A trombone. You're, you were a trombone. Yes. Yes. Okay. Primar- primarily. I played a bunch of them, but trombone was the one that I played mostly. And, oh, and euphonium, because you know that. Yeah. Oh, up. yes. Yep, I was yep, going to yep, say, yep. we should yeah. recap yeah. your yeah. Yes. Millionaire. euphonium player. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they, are, uh, they are themselves cousins. They have the same range, but the trombone has the slide and the euphonium has the keys. Oh, okay. Good so to know. You, if you know one to the other, it's easier. You don't have to change your embouchure too much. Your to, embouchure. Uh, to yes, you told me about that. We did a quiz and Julia... The I, answer I was embouchure. Yes, you remember, embouchure. and I could it, not get it because I'm I, I believe it literally means the in mouthing. So I mean, no. <laughs> the in mouthing. Yes, that's good. That's how I remember it. So, uh, as it turns out, one guy who had a very good embouchure for the trumpet was Clifford Brown. <laughs> While he was in high school, he played. He started playing the trumpet at age 13, but already very quickly started gigging. Started actually playing uh, in jazz bands and. Wow. Uh, he lived in Delaware, but Philadelphia was a short commute, so sure. he would go to Philadelphia uh, to gig when he was in high school. Uh, he was so good at music that Delaware State University gave him a music scholarship, and they didn't have a music program. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what? That 
that doesn't yeah. seem that doesn't seem right. It does well, seem a little not iffy. much good has come out of Delaware, Lauren. I don't know. So they're really just trying to hold on to their own. Everything they can. Yeah. yeah. All right. That makes sense, I guess. Well, Delaware State University did also know that he was a good math student. Ah, so I figured there may have been a little finagling in there um, because there were an insufficient number of scholarships elsewhere. But he enrolled as a math major at Delaware State University while continuing to develop. But at the time, um, given that he was playing enough, he started to meet more and more people in the world. So in 1949, when he was 18 or 19 years old, he sat in with Dizzy Gillespie's band. Oh, my God. For one, We know him. Yeah, we know Dizzy we know Gillespie. Well, Dizzy Gillespie is also a fairly clean living guy eventually. I think he had, he had his own drug issues that he kicked very early. Mm. Uh, sensible guy. Met Clifford Brown said, encouraged him to take up music as a career. So after one year, he transferred to Maryland State College to actually study music, where they actually had a band and a music <laughs> program. So he joined the band there. Uh, he joined a 16-piece big band, which is a standard size. Mm. Uh, 16-piece would be five saxophones, four trumpets, four trombones, piano, bass, and drums. Okay. So no triangle. That's a compl- mm, no, uh, well, the drummer, the drummer could do the triangle. Oh, okay. okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. They do have two hands and two feet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so while he was in the band, he kept gigging in Philadelphia. Uh, while he was there, he met Charlie Parker, Fats Navarro, two people active in that community. But while he was doing this process, we have his first major life problem. He got was coming back from a gig in Philadelphia, and he got into a major car accident. Oh, oh my God. I looked around quite a bit on the public internets to find out any kind of details about this, and I could find none. Except oh, really? that he effectively spent a year in recovery and could not play the trumpet for months because of how badly he was hurt. Oh, Aww. my God. That's awful. Mm. Ugh. How terrible. So, lip injury. Maybe it was just it was all lips. lips. Could have been lips. Could have been lungs. Could have oh. been hands. But yeah. not severely as hands because while he was recovering, he learned to play the piano. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Turning, turning <laughs> lemons into lemonade. <laughs> if, if I got into a horrifying car accident, Knockwood, and I had a year to recover, I would just watch, you would just watch so much TV. <laughs> I wouldn't learn to play the piano. Are you kidding me? Well, Bless at the time, t- TV kind of sucked in 1950. That's true. So. Though. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot on and not a lot happening. So yeah. you got a piano. You're a big nerd. What are you going to do? I'd like to think that I, I would, but... I probably wouldn't. No, you'd watch TV. Come on, Andrew. <laughs> I totally would. I totally watch TV. Well, while he was recovering, he learned the piano. He started to do more composing and other things that you can do when you can't play the trumpet. But sure. once he did, he got back on the on the the tour. Uh, he played with Art Blakey and his Jazz Messengers. He was one establishing himself as one of the top hard bop trumpeters in the business. I wrote those down as the words. To, to make it sound you know extra grand, but it's true. He really was. Top wow. hard bop. Uh, Top hard bop. Hard bop. So the deviation of jazz after the, the standard bebop era was, so bebop in the 1940s was basically horn players and, and pianists playing as fast as they could over existing chord changes and writing, basically composing their own stuff while improvising. Okay. And, and at a furious pace. It was almost like they were trying to show each other up in some ways. But you got a little respect for each other when you come up with the people that you're competing with. You're sure. Um, so when this continued, uh, there was kind of a split in jazz into two different types. One was the cool jazz movement, which was slower and more, uh, well, cool. <laughs> more uh, slower tempo, more harmony, more like that. We're gonna bring and it down be- for all the lovers. <laughs> <Some> cool bop. <laughs> well, now, now I'm gonna have to put that in uh, <laughs> every one of my playlists. Well, the other side of that was the hard bop movement, where it, it essentially continued on the same trend, but you had 
a little more cooperation between uh, horn players. Uh, you had a little more active role with the drums, uh, okay. a little bit of a harder, uh, harder tempo. Um, the bass player probably got a little more involved than they were before. So okay. you had more, sort of this offshoot that was faster. It was more technically, um, I don't want to say this, uh, well, difficult, but it, they played at a higher speed. Um, but still you had to be precise. You couldn't tend to be all that sloppy. Mm, and okay. Clifford Brown was, was not only kind of the fastest guy out there who could play effectively, he was also still playing like very melodically. It wasn't oh, wow. just that he was playing fast notes. He was playing music. Amazing. You know, and possibly better than any other trumpeter at the time wow. that I've ever heard within this period. Wow. That's amazing. So, so he, he started young. a quintet. He's, he was very young. At this point, he would have been, um, he was born in 1930. So in the early 50s, um, in 1954, he joined up with Max Roach to form the Clifford Brown Max Roach Quintet, oh. uh, which would have had a saxophone player as their second uh, horn, uh, as well as a piano and bass and Clifford Brown's trumpet. Uh, this was 1920, sorry, 1954. He would have been um, 23, 24 years old. Oh my God. And already being at this level. Yeah. So, so that year, he uh, he met and wed LaRue Anderson in 1954. They had one son, Clifford Brown Jr., who was born shortly after. LaRue was quoted as saying, music was his first love, I was his second, and math was his third. Oh, well, she got in there. She got in between math and, and music, so that's she pretty did. good. She did. I'd settle for yes. that. Well, at the time, you, you might, but at the time, uh, he was spending a lot of his time on the road playing with his band. Oh, so sure. They, they definitely had music kicking up there to number one doing mm -hmm. quite a bit at least she was above math yeah i mean, I mean can you imagine somebody loving math more math. than you i i have met a fair number of people who would make that claim and it's not great <laughs> no. but that's a professional hazard <laughs> yeah well uh in 1955 um the musician sunny the saxophonist sunny rollins was the joined that band uh while he was getting over uh, his own particular drug addiction and it was brown's clean living uh, and addiction to chess and other things that helped Rollins in his recovery. So good influence, Straight Edge Cliff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Just old Straight Edge Cliff. Is yes. that, was that his nickname? Uh, it is now. Okay, <laughs> great, good. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think his nickname would probably be the least lucky man in the whole jazz oh, universe no. because on ja on June twenty sixth, nineteen fifty six, he was driving from gig to gig. No, or he wasn't. He was in the car. No. With Richie Powell, who was his pianist in the quartet, and Richie Powell's wife was driving the car when they were driving down the Pennsylvania Turnpike no. in awful weather. Oh, the no. car skidded off the road, and all three were killed. <gasps> I wasn't ready for I wasn't that. Ready for him to die. He died. What young. year was this? 1956, June 26th. He was 25 years old. Oh at my the, at, god! At the height of his career, the cleanest living, nicest person you think you've ever met in music. And he was taken. I am he, So he made it to age 20, 25 or 26? Yeah. He didn't make it to 27. It was 25. He didn't make it to 27. It wasn't the 27 club. curse. He was, not, he was not in the 27 club. Ugh. But he was the least luckiest person I've ever seen in a car. Oh, my God. was affiliated God. with this. Oh. Uh, After all the recovery, all the, all the influence he had, he was taken far too soon. Oh. That's terrible. All right, yeah. P straight edge cliff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I hope they didn't skid off a cliff. That would be really I think that, ironic. That would be ironic. Uh, they, they, in fact, did skid off uh, off the road and fell quite a quite a distance. Oh but I don't know God. if it was like careening <laughs> off a cliff kind of thing, oh as God. as as far as rolling down a hill. <laughs> that would that would kind of put it in in uh, historical irony oh by the name just a little too much. I think I'm not you laughing. I'm not laughing at his death. I'm not. Oh, I promise no. you. No. <laughs> 
no, it's just so sad. It's so sad and so uh, horrible. <laughs> it is. It's absolutely. Um, it's absolutely terrible, oh. especially given that he was he was such a decent guy mm-hmm. with with purity in his heart and and nerdery in his life. <laughs> yes. And, Oh, that's sad. Well, yeah. So there's one legend um, that comes up that unfortunately I'll debunk it in a second, but <laughs> there's a recording of him uh, at a live concert uh, playing a tune called Donna Lee, uh, which I think is perhaps the greatest trumpet solo in jazz history. Wow. And, and there's, and there's the re- this recording of it where it's almost everything in this starts off where you play the melody for like 30 seconds and you go for eight minutes on your various solos you pass it around. Mm-hmm. And everything that I'm, I'm talking about with Clifford Brown with his tone his mathematical precision, uh, his his musicality, everything comes out in this one solo. Mm. And the very at the very end of it, I'm going to Google this to be sh- to be sure because I'm going to play okay. this because uh, there's a quote he says at the very end of this live recording. Uh, I think it's like you make me feel so wonderful. I'm going to look it up. It's just like it's tragic. Uh, it's, it's tragic in in the in the feeling of it. Yeah. Mm. Um, I'm going to see if I can find it. Okay, here it is. Thank you very much. You make me feel so wonderful. (laughs) It's been a pleasure being here. I really must go now. It's so hot. Now, the legend was, and I believe this for a long time, uh, that this was recorded the night before he died. Like like it was his last gig ever. And so there was all this legend for me that this is the height of his powers. This is what he did. And then and that was it. Yeah. Uh, but it turned out he actually had recorded it about a year before his death. Oh, okay. Yeah. Age 24. At age 24. <laughs> I mean, our, our mouth sounds are... Yeah. You're at the right We're speed. Right. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. The record companies R. are calling. <laughs> you, you already cut a Rosalind fucking Franklin tune, if I recall correctly. Yeah, we correctly. did. We did. That's true. That was yes. Julia. Yeah. So she's a solo artist over here. Mm. Well, there's the story of Clifford Brown. Took him <sighs> That's too young. tragic. Wow. Yes. But that's usually what makes uh, a great career move because uh, he's been a legend ever since. Yeah. And within the jazz community, especially. He, his, his play, his lifestyle, everything influenced pretty much every trumpeter that followed who knew jazz. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so he left a legacy, even if it didn't work out as well as it ought to have. Mm-hmm. Better to burn out than to fade away. Exactly. Am I right? Yeah. Cheers. Cheers yeah. to that. Mm. I kind of would have been fine if he faded away and played another. <laughs> yeah. 40 no, years. That's true. Where you can have. <laughs> A lot but more for, material. Yeah. yeah. Especially since his story, uh, uh, just the decency of the guy mm-hmm. is something you wish you, you, you want more people to hear about. Yeah, and so exactly. It, it's, uh, I think I listened to him for the first time when I was um, a freshman in, in but no, it was before it was in high school for sure. There was at least a couple of, I think the Donna Lee recording, in fact, I'd heard a couple of times before hearing the rest of his story. It was just, oh, here's a jazz tune that's mm-hmm. an awesome trumpeter. Um, a lot of a lot of jazz musicians and a lot of trumpeters in particular can be assholes, like just <laughs> complete. And I, what, half the reason that I like playing the trombone was there was a lot less ego when you got to the lower brass because there was less of an expectation of you're being the star and you're out there. Oh, I see. And okay, he's spilling the tea, he's spilling the, the tea about jazz <laughs> band. Who else is an and, asshole? Um, is it the saxophonists? Uh, <laughs> uh, not the baritone saxophonists because they're in the same boat as the lower brass. Okay. Okay. The tenor right. sax, and the bass, though. The bass player is usually pretty cool, too. Yeah, the yeah. drummer, and by the way, the whole idea that the drummers are like animal and just kind of out there, and um, it's entirely true. 
100%. Oh. Ooh, okay. All right. All right. All right. That's why I never dated a drummer. That's I heard about mm. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like well. I had any opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> Turning away yeah I was like, no, you do you play the drums? Forget you, man. Seal. They might they might have just been too crazy to be in your sphere of That's true, of, that's true. Of influence. This is pretty yeah. straight edge. All right. Well, speaking of uh I can't I can't segue that. It's not gonna work. Uh <laughs> Because the next person's not a drummer, and I don't want to get into the subject of mental health until later in the oh, okay. uh, the thing. So there's the story of Clifford Brown, the finest uh, finest man to uh, uh, the finest we've ever known to not be here. Now we shall not look upon his like again. Mm. So number three on my list, um, I'm taking a slightly different tack. It's actually funny; these were all born around the same time, but they're spaced out in their their various influences. Uh, Third up on my list is the singer, pianist, and activist, Nina Simone. Oh! Yes! Yes! Let's do this! <laughs> do, you, are, do you know uh, much about Ms. Simone I know just a wee bit. I know just okay. a little bit, too, and I know there's a documentary on Netflix or Amazon or something called um, What What Happened, Miss Simone, or What's Wrong, Miss Simone, something like that, yeah. And I, I haven't watched it happened. yet. I haven't watched it either. Uh most of what I'm getting is from what I've listened to her music and, and read and seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the reason that I wanted to cover her as the third part was she she's very different than a lot of people who were in the music industry were, mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of the sorts of things that she did as uh, as someone who was known for being a jazz person. She had an immense breadth in her repertoire. Mm-hmm. Like she she did a lot of different things. She started off at age three. She was born in February twenty on February twenty first, nineteen thirty three, in North Carolina. Started playing piano at age three. Oh my god! Inspired See, to be. You a, weren't even a, talking yet. <laughs> you are constantly going to be giving me shit about that. I tossed off a number, and suddenly I'm an idiot because I didn't start talking until I was three. All right. Just remember, <laughs> Einstein apparently didn't talk until he was five. Exactly. So you're, exactly. You're Thank you, Andrew. Well, what we're saying is you're, t- you're two years short of Einstein. I think is what we're going with here. <laughs> So Nina Simone playing the piano piano at age three. Yeah, (laughs) Aspired to be a classical pianist. In fact, most of her play, uh, most of her idols at the time were classical uh, composers, Bach, uh, Beethoven, et cetera, et cetera. At age three. uh, Well, as as she aged, as she began to appreciate (laughs) It's possible that that she went with dun-dun-dun-dun at an early age like many of us do. Sure. Nobody's home. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but in particular, she did have a fondness for Bach, and it shows up in a lot of her other work later, which Ooh. is why I find it so interesting. Uh, she was the valedictorian of her high school. Uh, she was not particularly wealthy, as you might imagine, from someone growing up uh, in a black family in North Carolina in the sure. 1930s and 40s. Uh, the support of her local community got her a year at Juilliard, where she was trained in classical piano. Oh, wow. uh, the next year, her family had moved to Philadelphia, and she applied to the Curtis School of Music, had a very, what she felt was a well-received audition, but was rejected. She felt uh, throughout her life that she was rejected largely because she was black. Yeah. Uh, it's impossible to know exactly how uh, this was taken mm-hmm. uh, or how this actually went down, but um, I'm inclined to believe her. Sure, absolutely. But, also, but this was also something that she maintained basically until she died and, and held a grudge over. Sure. Yeah, I would too. So, so at that point, her her dreams of being, um, how do I want to put this exactly, um, a professional classical pianist mm-hmm. were were derailed by this, by not being able to get into this world. Right. So in the meantime, she made a living as a music teacher, and at age twenty one, 
she answered an ad uh, for a piano pl uh, to play piano at the Midtown Bar and Grill in Atlantic City. Uh, she quickly discovered that if she wanted to keep this job playing, she'd have to also learn to sing because that's what was expected at this particular bar, oh, okay. where mostly you know drunk young men were coming to uh, <laughs> to watch. She was also like not only a very talented classical pianist, but had all this extra breadth, and she played pop tunes. She played the works. Yeah. Uh, now, her family didn't particularly like the idea of their, their cl refined classical daughter playing in a bar in Atlantic City. Mm. So she, her, her birth name was Eunice Kathleen Wayman, which she then uh, replaced with her stage name, Nina Simone. Uh, Nina from the Spanish for little girl, uh, which was apparently what her, her boyfriend at the time called her, would call her Nina. Uh, although this is unverified. Mm. Uh, also unverified is that the name Simone came from the French Oscar-winning actress Simone Signoret. Uh, she, uh, this was what was attached to her earlier, but she later denied this. So who, who knows? <laughs> who knows, yeah. But it's still a pretty great name. Yeah, it's a great so, name. So at this point, playing in, in the cabarets of Atlantic City, she began to get a reputation for being an excellent musician with a large amount of range. Uh, at age 24, she signed her first record deal to Bethlehem Records. Uh, and five years later, she moved to Newport City, New York City, part Newport City, <laughs> New Newport City. 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 <laughs> you gotta, you gotta leave the that best one. Best bacon in town. Oh, so, so delicious. She, <laughs> so she moved to Newport City, signed <laughs> with Colpix Records in 1960, and that following year, she performed at the Newport Jazz Festival for the first time. So she already had a career doing quite a bit of different things, but playing largely a jazz repertoire. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna pause in the narrative here to kind of go over why I think she's such an important uh, musical presence. Okay. And a lot of it's that like she's known for being like a jazz singer, but because she was classically trained, she was able to put together the two styles pretty much better than anyone I've ever heard. Mm. So there's um there was a group called the Modern Jazz Quartet, which played a very restrained, cool feel. They dressed up in suits. They they made themselves very upper class. Um, Miles Davis would have an orchestra play on not a full orchestra, but a, like a jazz orchestra. Yeah. Uh, doing certain things like they played them. Um, they arranged Porgy and Bess. Uh, oh, okay. With, oh, nice. with, yeah. with, with an arranger named Gil Evans. Uh, beautiful. Album, great stuff. Uh, still had more of a, very much a, um, a jazz feel to it. Mm -hmm. Um, and around the same time, there were some academics who, um, okay, this is my take on it. And if anyone out there gets offended, it doesn't matter. They're all dead anyway. Uh, <laughs> But when I was taking, when I was getting my education in this, in my undergrad, this was uh, a big pioneering part of the curriculum because I think it was the friends of theirs who were starting it. Um, there was a guy named Gunther Schuler who was a French horn player. He played with Miles Davis in that orchestra. Um, was an academic. He taught, I think, at the New England Conservatory of Music. Um, he died about a year or two ago. I saw him. He, he conducted our band. I didn't. I, oh, he, he always just seemed like a like a dork. No, <laughs> dork is good. He seemed like an asshole to me. Okay. <laughs> I didn't. I hadn't met him at the time, but apparently in the 1950s, he he was trying to uh, push and pioneer some of these classical influences uh, by elevating the classical music presence to an equal one on jazz, calling them the first and second streams. And that third stream was this new style where we had these artists who would blend classical and jazz together. Okay. And every every time I heard one of these pieces, it sounded like there was a little bit of classical and there was a little bit of jazz. And it didn't really feel like there was any soul as part of it. It felt like, hey, this scrawny white guy who couldn't who couldn't stay in Miles's band is trying to make things happen for himself <laughs> I by see. making this happen. Yeah, so it, so it that, felt academic as opposed to organic. It, it it felt very academic, both in how it was created and how it was taught to me. Oh, okay. Mm. So so 
about a year. I don't think I started listening to her until about 2005. And this would have been a couple of years after she died. And and I I bought the the greatest hits album because someone said, hey, you got to buy this greatest hits album. And the one of the, the first tracks on this is um, Love Me or Leave Me, which is a jazz standard. But she's playing the whole piano part under it is in the style of Bach. Oh, my and God. <laughs> like, like, a, like a Bach cantata. And she's, she's actually making it happen, going between the two styles, mm-hmm. both in her singing and the playing. And it felt like this was the first time I'd ever heard anyone actually pull this thing off to the degree that they'd ever claimed it was possible. Mm, wow. Like someone speaking in two voices at the same time with this beautiful performance oh my god and oh. turn so so this hit me almost immediately when i listened to that and then on the rest of this album there are a couple more examples of that um there's a, a tune called little girl blue i'm pretty sure she was a little girl for for nina in that in it oh uh, yeah and the piano part is actually like good king wenceslas oh my god christmas <laughs> that's my favorite but, christmas song it's a great <laughs> christmas song <laughs> and so she's playing like it's got this kind of somber tone to it but she's singing beautifully on top of it and like no one bef- that i'd ever heard before or since has has actually done this this idea of the third stream classical and jazz together. Yeah. And, and she kept it going like for a long time. It's just part of her style, part of her natural growth mm-hmm. that she'd, that she'd loved both of these worlds. And so this is where like, to me, this is where she fits into the whole pantheon is she had this space basically all to herself doing it well. Oh, wow. And, and gained a lot of fame around the world for it because like she played Carnegie hall. She oh played in Europe. She did a lot of these things that got her a lot of, um, upper class recognition. Mm-hmm. And she was unique in a lot of these, um, in a lot of that sphere because she also played the instrument too, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Cause she was playing it both because she was a pianist and a vocalist at the same time. Um, probably like, I'm just trying to think back to the people who had been in that era. Most pianists were not vocalists. Like you're talking like Nat King Cole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about, um, Ray Charles, um, mm-hmm. not Oscar Peterson, just piano. No, not too many would have done both. Right. And gotten that level of recognition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. These days, Diana crawls probably about the closest she would get to that. Oh, okay. yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who also had the same kind of career path. This is a diversion. Um, she was, she got her, she was a piano student at Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And I'm going to Google that to be absolutely sure, but I was pretty sure because it was right down the road from where I was. Um, and, and someone said to her, you know, if you're going to want to make it anywhere, you're going to have to learn to sing. Oh. And and now and now her singing is what everyone knows her for oh, because yeah. she's got a very distinctive style. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Diana Krall, class of '83 from Berkeley College of Music. There, there we go. go. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's 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 funny that these people trained as instrumentalists first and then adapted to be singers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what people more people know them for. Yeah. All right. So remember how I talked about how um, she was being regarded well by the upper crust and and the white audiences and everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that started to change a little bit in the uh-huh. 1960s because, as it turns out, it was an active time for the civil rights movement. And while she'd always had strong feelings about this, she kind of uh, suppressed them in her art, mm-hmm. um, reluctant to get it, have it get in the way. Sure. And that changed. That changed dramatically in the 1960s. So uh, I got four four songs listed that were known for her to be famous in that period. Uh, 1963, after Medgar Evers was assassinated and uh, the uh, church bombing killed four girls in Birmingham, Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, she wrote a song uh, that became, I don't necessarily want to call it her anthem, but probably her most recognized protest song, Mississippi Goddamn. Yes. And she, yes. yes. That's and That song is a real punch to the gut. It is, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 she'll interject with a little bit of humor along the way. Bet you thought I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, that was that I, I'd call that one of the beginnings because it was banned on the radio in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, so was uh, Four Women, which was a song about African-American archetypes mm-hmm. uh, brought on by society, the society in which they were living. Uh, a lot of people thought it was a racist song because she was speaking to some of the stereotypes that had been present in song and literature and uh-huh. uh, you know, about descendants of slaves and people, uh, biracial people not being able to fit in. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful song, but um, but uh, misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, she was friends with the playwright Lorraine Hainsbury. Oh, do you hey. know her most? Um, yes, we uh, do. Raisin in the Sun, yes. right? Yeah. Raisin in the Sun. Yeah. Yes. Great job. So she died. Thank you. <laughs> so Lorraine Hainsbury of Raisin in the Sun died in 1965. She was only 34. Uh, they were friends uh, throughout this period. And she wrote a song called To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, mm-hmm. which is which is uh, often uh, a description used for Nina Simone herself. Wow. And, uh, and, and after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, her bass player, a guy named Greg Taylor, wrote a tune called Why, parentheses, The King of Love is Dead, mm. uh, which she then performed, uh, I believe, at festivals uh, in the, the time that followed. So this marked the period where uh, society basically started to turn on her for being a person with a character and, uh, and beliefs. You can't have and, opinions. Uh, yeah, no, you can't no. have opinions. Especially if you're a woman. No. Oh Especially God, if no. you're a black woman. Yeah, exactly. No. No. And so her fame and um, presence in the United States decreased. It also turned out that she wasn't paying her taxes. Yes, uh, she, I did hear about she, this. <laughs> she claimed this was a protest against the Vietnam War, but mm. um, as it turned out, she was later diagnosed as being bipolar. So oh, it's very wow. possible that she was just, you know, kind of out there. Mm-hmm. Um in 1970, she this is when she effectively left the U.S., although she did come back. She had to get arrested for non-payment of taxes oh, at one point. Oh, jeez. Uh, she lived in Barbados and had an affair with the man who would become the prime minister. Wow. Ooh, all which, right. Which just to get me it, just Nina. puts that right up. There's a life story right up there. Really. <laughs> uh, she then followed that up living in Liberia, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and then eventually moved to France, where she would spend the rest of her life. Oh, like wow. Josephine Baker. Exactly. Got in. Uh, jo- I, I was thinking, uh, in fact, when I was writing this up, I thought, didn't you guys do something about Josephine Baker and her exile to, to France? I thought, hey, wait a minute. This is a lot like Josephine Baker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, although, you know, time shifted 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the same attitudes about a woman daring to express her opinion definitely yeah. come up again and again. Exactly. So uh, the rest of her life, she she recorded for a while until until near the end of her life. But most of the rest of her life was uh, about her being a little bit nuts. So um, she at one point um, she had conflicts with uh, the people she worked with. Uh, apparently, she she fired a gun near Janice Ian because there was a, a dispute about uh, royalties. Uh, she t- she took an air gun. And fired it at the neighbors who were being too loud in the pool next door. There's just a lot of just just unbalanced behavior oh that came boy. out of her later. Yeah. And yeah. But uh, I, was, I was on the fence whether to mention it or not because I figured, you know, I don't have all the details about how this worked in her story. Mm-hmm. Um, but she'd been through enough in her life as it was. Mm-hmm. And you got and, and at some point you got to tell the full picture. Of sure. someone who's someone who is such a genius in a lot of ways. There's no shortage of geniuses out there with mental illness. Yeah, right. and, absolutely. Yeah, and it has nothing to do with why they were as good as they were. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Thelonious Monk was another one of these cases of someone who was un, undisputed genius with mental health issues, uh, but was also not that damaging to the people around him as mm-hmm. he could have been. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, she ended her life there. She died April twenty first, two thousand three, in France. Uh, she was on, uh, she's had many honors since, uh, after her death, more people started covering her songs. Oh, speaking of which she covered a lot of other people's songs. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like she, um, 
there's an example like she covered the bgs uh <laughs> she covered oh it's just a whole list that i had up here um like she wasn't just limiting herself to classical and jazz she would play almost anything yeah and and play the other artists who would then you know i was gonna say play her back but that came later um <laughs> mostly after she died as other artists started to to play her songs and rediscover her mm. um largely because death is a great career move and <laughs> yeah. and so more people recognized uh, you know who she was um so uh, other i've got a, a few quotes and things to list here uh maya angelou wrote of her in 1970 uh speaking to that to, to who she was she is loved or feared adored or disliked but few who have met her music or glimpsed her soul react with moderation wow and that definitely that definitely seems to be the truth for her yeah yeah uh, she was named uh, number 29 on Rolling Stone's list of 100 greatest singers. Wow, great. Uh, I'm quoting from that article. White people had Judy Garland. We had Nina, said Richard Pryor. <laughs> Nina. Um, I, um, as part of the rest of this article, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free is still heartbreaking. To be young, gifted, and black, life-affirming. She could belt barroom blues, croon cabaret, and explore jazz, sometimes all on a single record. Mary J. Blige said, I heard her sing a song in French. I didn't even know what she was saying, and I started crying. Wow. Then she goes from that to Mississippi Goddamn, (laughs) singing it like a church record, but she's cursing out the system. Nina could sing anything, period. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, In 2018, Nina Simone was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Great. Awesome. Largely because so many other people have covered her work. Right. that, That she has been recognized in that capacity. Yeah. From, from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame website, Nina Simone's unapologetic rage and accusatory voice named names and took no prisoners in the African-American struggle for equality in the early 1960s. Her triumphant voice sang what it meant to be young, gifted, and black in a sometimes unjust and troubled world. Did she sing Sinner Man? Yes, which is also a fantastic can't miss. So amazing. Okay. Because um, the Thomas Crown Affair 1997 movie <laughs> is probably in my top 20 movies of all oh, time. Sure, of and so when they're doing the the actual heist with like the ma, the Magritte um, mm-hmm. bowler hats and the in the suits and stuff like that, and everybody's crisscrossing, that's the song that's playing. And I probably rewatch that scene once a year because it's so good. <laughs> so good, and, like, you want to live in that scene. It's so good with it, and I remember like downloading the song on Kazaa so that I can have it <laughs> <laughs> like, when I wanted to hear it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I bought it off. I bought it off Amazon, so I'm I'm with you there. Uh, a fantastic song, fantastically played to exactly all those same strengths. Yeah, it's just, and then it also makes a great great heist music. Yes, I think I heard it on Sherlock for the same. <gasps> oh the same yeah, way. yeah, love it. So those are my three profiles of people who have made a personal difference one way or the other in my appreciation of jazz. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. Those are things that we wouldn't have known otherwise. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. (laughs) Um, By the way, the documentary about Nina Simone is called What Happened, Miss Simone? Just FYI for our listeners. Um, There there was a biopic that came out recently with with Zoe Saldana in the role. Yes. and there was an issue about the casting because so Nina Simone was not only black, she was dark black. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was a um, dark skin. Her skin black complexion woman. was ex- exceptionally dark skinned. And Zoe Saldana, who's from, I want to say it's the Caribbean, is, mm-hmm. is a lighter skinned woman of color. And they had to apply a darker makeup and a nose prosthetic yes. mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. make her look alike. And there was quite a bit of discussion about this. I'm not at all qualified to talk about that, about the racial components of it all. Um, but I, I do know that if you're going to make an, any kind of an effort uh, 
to cover someone whose life was so political at these mm -hmm. points, you should probably do your research first on whether or not darkening someone's skin for a role is a good idea. Yeah, right. agreed. Yeah. And yeah. I think Zoe Saldana is a very talented actress, but, you know... Yeah, and I think a lot of people, not only in the in the acting industry, but also just in in the black community, was that the, the idea was it's not like Zoe Saldana was the only woman of color who could have played Nina Simone. Like there are plenty mm -hmm. of women, and maybe dark skinned black women actresses who could have played her and played her just as well or better than. Zoe Saldana. Right. And right. the idea was that Zoe Saldana was so traditionally and acceptably beautiful right. <laughs> um, that that was why she was cast as opposed to her acting ability. So that was the criticism that was, it seemed to be the, yeah. the linchpin mm -hmm. of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, I haven't seen that movie yet either. And I don't know when I'll get around to that. We're getting I like a will. video playlist and, and a movie. This is what happens when the people you're covering are, are massive influences at some level mm -hmm. in popular culture, even if it takes a long time for them to, to get out there. Yeah. All right. Would you like to hear today's quiz? Yes. We would love to. Yes. Thank All you. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, in the spirit of talking about jazz, this is a quiz involving jazz, the word. And that is 10 questions that derive from me looking up things that involve the word jazz. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. We're ready. Cue the sparkly, the sparkly quiz music. Question one. Jazz is the best friend of what NBC sitcom title character on air from 1990 to 1996? Question two. What 1979 movie is essentially an autobiography of its director, Bob Fosse? Question number three. Jazz hands is exclaimed several times by Dr. Krieger after his character watched The Wiz on both the stage and screen. What FX adult cartoon features the character? of Dr. Krieger. Question four. The Utah Jazz are an NBA team which, as you can probably tell from their name, did not originate in Utah. What southern city was their original home? Question five. Jazz was the call sign of a traitor in the Wing Commander series of spaceflight games which were far, far superior to the movie adaptation of this game that came out in 1998. I may get the year wrong one way or the other. I didn't want to look it up. Name one of the two stars of this movie who played the human male occupants of the mystery machine in a 2002 movie. Question six. Jazz is the cultivar of what kind of fruit? Is a cultivar of what kind of fruit? You may not have to think different to get this one. Question seven. Jazz is a 1992 novel by what author of The Bluest Eye and Beloved? I hope it feels good to get this one correct. Question eight. Jazz Jackrabbit is a 1994 computer game from Epic Mega Games. Today, the company, known as Epic Games, is best known for another game whose victory dances have gotten popular and legal attention. What game is this? Don't take more than a few days to come up with the answer. Question 9. Jazz is a 2001 documentary series by Ken Burns. His first production in 1981 was nominated for an Oscar and was about the history of what famous structure near and named for his birthplace. Question 10. According to Star Trek, jazz music survives as an art form well into the 24th century. You're going to get this because we already talked about it. But Commander Riker plays an instrument, which I also play, that is also known as a sack butt. What does he play? Those are your 10 questions. We'll give you a minute or so to think about them.
Mr. Hoots, I hate to bug a busy bird, but I want to learn the sax, and I need a helpful word. I always get a silly squeak when I play the blues. Burn to keep you cool, I'll teach you how to blow the sax. I think I dig your problem, it's rubber and it quacks. You'll never find the skill you seek till you pay your dues. You gotta put down the ducky. Put down the ducky. Put down the ducky, yeah, you gotta leave the duck alone. You gotta put down the ducky. Put down the ducky. Put down the ducky if you wanna play the saxophone. You didn't hear a word I said. You gotta get it through your head. Don't be a stubborn cluck. And we've come back from our musical break. I hope you picked a good one. <laughs> Question number one. Jazz is the best friend of what NBC sitcom title character? On air from 1990 to 1996. Uh, what is Blossom? <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow, that was so fast. I had no idea. <laughs> well, I can't tell if you're kidding or not, because I believe Blossom's best friend was six. <gasps> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> but I don't know. Kay. I don't know. What was the answer? In West Philadelphia, oh, burn and raise no. all the playgrounds. DJ Jazzy 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 I wanted to add something about being thrown out of a door in there, but oh. I thought my NBC sitcom friends were going to get that one with, with an RP. Oh. But Fresh but I guess feel Jazz. so awful. No, don't feel I'm bad. I'm going to beat myself up about don't this. Don't beat yourself up about it. That That's happens. Okay. I've done it. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, God. It's also debatable whether or not they're best friends, but they're definitely best friends in real life. So yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, that's we'll true. That. <laughs> six. Ah. Six, Jazz. I mean, it's not that far off. You're not that far off. <laughs> All right. Question two. What 1979 movie is essentially an autobiography of its director, Bob Fosse? That is All That Jazz. That is All That Jazz. Okay. Great. Apparently, it's Roy Scheider who plays him, which yes. I, I just can't see after Jaws. Really? And yeah. Sequest. No, I can see Roy Scheider as uh, huh. as Fosse. Yeah, it's the glasses and the sharp features. I think I kind of confused Bob Fosse and Bob Mackie. Oh yeah, no, that's understandable. It's understandable. <laughs> just feather. I would too if I, yeah. if I if I knew anything about Bob Mackie. Maybe I'd make that distinction too. <laughs> He's the one who did all of Cher's costumes through the '60s and '70s and '80s. Okay. Yeah. Wow, a Bob Mackie. I just remember that from Millhouse. Yeah. That's all I got. <laughs> Question three. Jazz hands is exclaimed several times by Dr. Krieger after his character watched The Wiz on both stage and screen. What FX adult cartoon features the character Dr. Krieger? That is Archer. That is Archer. Okay. God, I had, I I had like... some... God, Andrew, I knew I had paused, something for Andrew, this. Andrew, you paused so long. <laughs> Phrasing. I was trying to... I was trying to come up with a line, but <laughs> I had nothing. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> all right. Question four. The Utah Jazz are an NBA team, which, as you can probably tell from their name, did not originate in Utah. What southern city was their original home? Oh, you want me to? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, New Orleans. It is New Orleans. Yes. yes. I did know that. I remember a couple years ago when I was like, you know, studying up for TV game shows or, or and whatnot. <laughs> I was like writing down all the names of all of the teams everywhere. Okay. Okay. Minnesota. Okay. This. And then I was like, the New Orleans Pelicans? <laughs> if you would have said for a hundred dollars, yeah. is there a professional sporting team in the United States named the Pelicans? Yeah. I would not have gotten that. No, absolutely right. not. No, it doesn't make any well, sense. Uh, 
Uh, at least that one's legit because the pelican <laughs> is the official state bird of Louisiana. Oh, I guess well, that makes sense. There you go. But can so you, it's like, a little bit closer. You're not too scared well, to go play the pelicans, no. right? So th- this one I'm never going to forget because um, you ever seen the movie Basketball? Oh, no, I, I haven't. Have it's no. it, it has its moments, but the very big. It's they talk about professional sports teams moving from city to city, uh, as in the introduction, and it's uh, this this great uh, actor named Stephen McHattie, who you've seen in other places, di- giving the, the the speech, and he starts by saying, "The Minneapolis Lakers moved to Los Angeles, where they have no lakes. <laughs> the New Orleans and the New Orleans Jazz moved to Utah, where they don't allow music." <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. That's perfect. Yes, so that's how I remember that one. All right, question five. Jazz was the call sign of a traitor in the Wing Commander series of Spaceflight games. And I wanted to write a question about those games because I play them a lot and they're great, but I figured you probably hadn't, so I pivoted to the movie adaptation in the 19... 19- in 1998, which was awful. In mm. fact, a lot of people uh, went to the theater just to see the preview for Star Wars and then left. That's how oh, wow. That, that's how good that movie was and how bad the Wing Commander movie was. Hmm. It had two male stars, name one of them, who played the human male occupants of the Mystery Machine in a 2002 movie. Okay. So the Mystery Machine is Scooby-Doo. Yes. Okay. And you got, you got, you got, you got Fred. Fred. Uh, so is it Freddie Prince Jr.? Freddie Prince Jr. for one. Yes. Uh, Do you know the other? I don't know the other guy. I can see him in my head, but... From from Scooby-Doo? Yeah. Matthew Lillard? Matthew Lillard. It is Matthew Lillard. You're two for two. (gasps) Nice job! But I don't know what movie they were in originally. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't bother. Don't bother watching the Wing Commander movie. Oh, it was Wing Commander. Wing Commander. Okay. Okay. The Wing Commander. In fact, the the games that they made in the 1990s before that movie came out are basically movies... But on but computer game movies, computer oh, okay. they were like the first of their kind. They were expensive to make. Mark Hamill played your character, and it was it was pretty good. Wow, wow, to, yeah, yeah. So just if you're ever going to watch the Wing Commander movie, skip it and just go to YouTube and find someone who's playing that game. It's okay. actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and and Jazz was a character who was a traitor. All right, all right. Question six: Jazz is the cultivar of what kind of fruit? You may not have to think different to get this one. Is it an apple? It is an apple. Yes. Yeah. It's tasty too. It's good for. I don't eating. think I've ever. It's a good. I don't think I've ever had a jazz apple. Oh yeah, because you okay. So so New York State cultivates a lot of different cultivars of apples, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think University of Minnesota is the one that creates the most different kinds of apples per year. Am I they, incorrect? I believe you're correct in that they create a lot. I don't know if I can give you full credit because I can't give me full credit. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think that's where we're getting the good apple from. No, we're getting those good apples. The good apples. Yeah. I think the Honeycrisp came from uh, the from the U. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. But it's definitely one that's massively involved mm-hmm. in, in that. Yeah. I don't know where the jazz came from, though. <laughs> I do know the Fuji came from Japan because where else would it come from? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Question number seven. Jazz is a 1992 art novel by what author of The Bluest Eye and Beloved? That I hope is, it feels good to get this one correct. Um, that is Toni Morrison. That is Toni Morrison. Yes. Did you need my Did you need my hint? Uh, no, I know The Bluest Eye because I used to work at Barnes & Noble and I would shelve. Schmarns & Blobel, Sh- remember? Oh, sorry. Sorry. I used to work at a little bookstore called Schmarns & Bobel. <laughs> Best I could hint for that was, was to go with It Feels Good by Tony, Tony, Tony. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> See, that would be more, that's more obscure for me, but, you know, uh, okay. your mileage may vary on that. I had to cover a couple of different angles to make sure that it was uh, gettable. Sure. If you, didn't, if you didn't happen to know it, because I keep forgetting about the bluest eye. Yeah. 
and it comes up a lot in trivia. And I can't. It does, yeah. Toni Morrison comes up a lot, yeah. yeah. Question eight. Jazz Jackrabbit is the 1994 computer game from Epic Mega Games, whose only purpose was to get the word jazz into this question. <laughs> Today, the company is better known under Epic Games for another game whose victory dances have gotten popular and legal attention. What game is this? It's Don't take more than a few days to come up with the answer. That's Fortnite. It is Fortnite. Specifically, yes. Fortnite Battle Royale. Oh, yes. There are a yes. couple of different brands of it, but that's the one that is the most famous, the one yeah. that everyone will refer to as Fortnite. Because I don't, I don't play Fortnite. No, uh, neither do I. Um, but whenever we would watch the NFL games and then they would do like their celebration dances at the end, there were so many that, that Josh would say like, oh, that's a Fortnite dance. Like, <laughs> that's a Fortnite. <laughs> I, I only learned about uh, the floss from watching Ted Danson do it. Uh, uh, both, both on The Good Place and on uh, YouTube videos they were filmed on set yes. for him practicing for The Good Place being taught by William Jackson Harper and it was adorable apparently I, I think I don't know if it was you that shared that but some quote from somebody on set was like the floss dance that he was oh it was for Vulture Vulture uh-huh. did like an article about it and they mm-hmm. said you know in every spare moment when we were not filming, someone on set was teaching Ted Danson how to floss. Like he was <laughs> committed to doing it right. And so yep. because he was constantly practicing and trying to get people to show him how to do it, people were recording it on their phones and like posting it to YouTube or Twitter. It was very sweet. <laughs> the man's a pro. Oh, oh he's wonderful. He gets, he gets it done. All right. Number nine. Jazz is a 2001 documentary series by Ken Burns and has the most tenuous connection to the theme from today's thing <laughs> because it's actually about jazz. Uh, his first production in 1981 was nominated for an Oscar. It was, I should say, it was a, I did say documentary. Uh, no, I didn't. This was also a documentary because that's what Ken Burns does. Uh, but I figured that was implied. Uh, it was about the history of what famous structure near and named for his birthplace. Hmm. Famous structure? Okay. Where was he born, Lauren? I don't know. <laughs> What, does he have an accent? Uh, I would, I, I gathered him to be um, uh, either Midwest or New England. Oh, so it's not really narrowing yeah, it down. Yeah, not really narrowing okay. it down. Hmm. St. Louis Arch? No. Maybe? That's fun. I mean, that's a fun guess. Or maybe, see, now I'm thinking like the GW Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge. Oh, the Brooklyn Bridge? Maybe the Brooklyn Bridge? You want to do that? Or do sure. you want to do St. Louis Arch? No. All never. right, all right. We're going to say Brooklyn Bridge. The correct answer is Brooklyn Bridge. Yes! Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> I unplug everything <laughs> <Yeah>. as I <laughs> <laughs> flip the table. That's it. Just, just drop the mic. And headphones everywhere. <laughs> Born uh, in Brooklyn. Very first documentary he made, nominated for an Oscar. And oh, my God. He got one later, a few years later as well. But uh, I think most of his, his later projects have not been... Uh, Movie releases. They've yeah. been more for television. Yeah. Did he get an Oscar for... Um, uh, did he get an Oscar for Civil War? No. Do you know? Um, I say it was PBS. I don't think he got an Oscar Oh, for sure, it, but, sure, sure. Um, but I'm going to look it up. Probably an okay. Emmy. Probably got I, an Emmy. I, I oh, yeah. I, I bet, bet he wins a lot of got, Emmys. I bet you anything he got Emmy nominations at, at a minimum. Oh, I clicked on the Netflix one, but I can see that he was the winner of... It was the winner of three primetime Emmys. So, yeah. Okay, wow. I mean, that was the one that basically put him on the map. Sure, yeah. As I recall. Yeah, Yeah, you're our Ken Burns aficionado. I mean, I still can't get through Civil War because I just fall straight to sleep. (laughs) Not that it's boring. It's just very, like, um, the tempo of it. Uh, It's mm. very plodding and comforting. That Ashokan farewell just... (laughs) 
All right. It received uh, Civil War received two Emmys, two Grammys, uh, a Pro- producer of the year award from the Producers Guild of America. Wow. Uh, People's Choice Award, Peabody Award, DuPont Columbia Award, D.W. Griffith Award, which sounds like something I wouldn't want, and uh, <laughs> and the, and the $50,000 U.S. Lincoln Prize, among dozens of others. Nice. Wow. Okay, great. Yeah. So, so he, did, he, he did okay despite moving away from uh, production films. Yeah, from rele- movie releases. Interesting. Yes. Now he needs a Tony, it sounds like. Yeah, he just needs the Let's EGOT. Get him in there. Let's get him his EGOT. Uh, well, he, has, he has an Oscar nomination. He didn't, oh, okay. he didn't win an Oscar. Oh, okay, okay. So we got to get him. What's he the EGOT for go. runners-up? The, the, the runners-up he got. <laughs> All right. And number 10, according to Star Trek, jazz music survives as an art form well into the 24th century. Side note, TV apparently does not. <laughs> Commander Riker plays an instrument, which I also play, that is also known as a sackbutt. What does he play? He plays the trombone. And, he does play the trombone. Uh, he is the, the weeniest weenie when he plays the trombone. I think, okay, so, you know, mm-hmm. Riker Riker's like the sexy cool guy, right? On on uh That's how, that's how he was made to be. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I I have like a distinct memory of an episode where he comes into the, you know, the mess hall or the bar or whatever it is. And everyone's like, "Riker, Riker, come here." And they like hand him a trombone and he's like, "No, I I can't." And they're like, "No, please play." <laughs> and someone starts like an intro, beep 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 on the piano like bump 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 and he's like oh, okay okay and he picks up the, set, the trombone and he's like and everyone's losing their shit <laughs> and it's apparently they've all forgotten what it sounds like exactly <laughs> exactly and he's like and and he's not a good fake trombone player if i remember correctly that's well the funniest part about it is i think on the like the first time they ever did it he recorded his own music did like, he, he really did his own trombone play. Wow. yeah but then for later ones, they got some, I guess it was just too good or too complicated. <laughs> they got, they got some other professionals to play it. Oh, okay. Uh, and then dubbed over it. But apparently like he can do it legit. Oh, like, okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I guess I just, I, I don't, Riker's not my favorite character. <laughs> so, so maybe I'm just like, I'm just besmeagering him just so that I can. But yeah. That's a possibility. But you're, Picard, uh, still, Picard playing that flute to me is not nearly as impressive as Wrecker no, playing, you're right. playing the bone uh, the bone in front of a, a three-piece ensemble. <laughs> the bone. <laughs> Can we call it that? Oh, the bone. He does. He does. <laughs> His very first time he plays it, he wa- is on the holodeck and he says, now I need a band. Piano, bass, drums, and a bone for me. And I tried not to giggle because I was only six years old and didn't realize <laughs> that's what it was. Bring me my bone. Bring me the bone. I want to tool around in <laughs> my bone. Is it? Is it mm. <laughs> what do you call it? Wait, what do you call someone that played the bone? A boner? <laughs> Is that it? Do, are you called you, a boner, Andrew? They just call them the bones, and you leave it. At, <laughs> and you leave it at that. Oh my god, I love it so much. Mm. Oh, I learned this so. This was m- wonderful. Oh, I learned so much today. Thank you, Andrew. Thank this you, was Andrew. wonderful. Thank you both for having me on. It's a, always a delight. Always a pleasure to have you on. Yes. Um. So. So. Uh. Tell us a little bit about your podcast to kind of cross cross reference. Well, my podcast is intermittently released. Uh, and when I get people like you who have topics of interest who want to ask slower burning quiz questions about something whether you'd like to be educational. And so on some of our previous episodes, I think the very first one we did was about the provinces of Canada because there are 10 of them. And so it was a natural place to start. Perfect. That's right in. Uh, we did um, had people come on to talk about mythology. Um, 
Uh, two lovely people I know talked about television. Yeah, that's uh, us. That's us. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, beer. Uh, and beer. Yeah. Did beer. I did beer to two people who didn't drink beer, so that that could have been planned better. <laughs> but the idea is, it's a time to uh, for a little bit of education in your style, but built around asking questions. So. It's meant to provoke discussion in much the same way you guys do. You, in fact, I was a little worried when I started to come up with the concept and started listening to you that it might be a little too close. But I think we've got our own little areas mapped oh, up. Definitely. And if, as long as we're cross-hosting on these kinds of things, they'll know we're all we're <laughs> oh, buddies. Oh, yeah. You know. We're all buddies. We're all buddies. Um, and it's called 10 Things I Wish You Knew. And yep. where where can people get it? Well, there's no fancy website for it. There is a Facebook page for it. That links back to where you can find it on iTunes. And Google Play, and um, I think it's originally through Podbean. So if you go to Podbean, you can find it there too. Uh, but it should be available on any podcast app that goes through Apple or Google Play. Great. Well, thank awesome. you, Andrew. This was absolutely wonderful. So wonderful. Do you have anything else to plug? Um, nothing in particular. Um, other than I'm sad to be missing you at Geek Bowl. Oh, no. Your, your team is going to be the aw- a pretty awesome team to play with because oh. it's it's you two and your husbands and my good friend Mara and her husband, yes. Idris, who's also, well, I've known Mara for a long time, so I'm not going to say Idris is an equally good friend because I've known Mara <laughs> since 1998. But oh, wow. Wow. that is a pretty, that's, and, and Idris is a particularly great trivia guy too. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. going to have a lot of fun and it's going to be great. And I'm sorry that my work commitments have gotten in the way. Yeah, well, we will miss you terrible because we were looking forward to seeing you, but um, we'll just have to make sure that we meet up at some point in the near future. Until we meet again, ladies. Yes, yes. absolutely. Well, thank you so much, <laughs> thank Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> thank you. And yeah, if you um, need to catch up on any of our backlog, um, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and basically any podcast app. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, um, if you have any, if you have any fan messages you'd like us to pass along to Andrew, which we'd be happy to do. Yes. <laughs> mm. Um, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at misinfopod and we have a Facebook page, misinformation colon a trivia podcast. And, uh, we will post, um, your episode and also cross link on, uh, Facebook so that people yeah. can access your Facebook page there. Uh, awesome. and, and we also have a website, triplededub.missinfopod.com. Great. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And thank you again Thanks to again, Andrew, Andrew Thomas of 10 Things uh, I Wish You Knew. And we will catch you next time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.